Good morning, everybody. We're going to get started with the forum. This morning, we're continuing a series that we started last week. If you'd like to see the presentation from last week, it is up as video on our website and on our YouTube channel. Uh, last week, we heard about disparities in income and in housing across St. Louis uh, with the folks from Faith and For the Sake of All and the landmark report that has come out from them. Uh, this week, we're really glad to continue the conversation with one of our city's leading advocates for folks who are housing insecure. Uh, I heard Tekka Childress's name within days of coming to St. Louis. I'd been involved in homeless work in ministry in downtown uh, uh, Washington, D.C. And when I first got here, a lot of you know, I was working on the staff of the presiding bishop and living downtown and volunteered several times with Christ Church Cathedral's uh, part of the winter shelter network that Tekka helped to found. I know a number of you all have volunteered at the cathedral with the work that they do with the homeless over the years. Uh, and we actually had Tekka here a, a number of years ago now um, to talk about homelessness as we were starting to think about what we would do with our house right behind us. Uh, next week, you'll hear a little bit more about that house, which we're currently renting uh, to the St. Patrick um, Center, and it's being used to house folks who are veterans who have experienced homelessness. We'll hear more about it next week. But before we had them, we thought we would invite Tekka and ask her to give us a sort of sense of what is the state of homelessness in St. Louis. Um, so longtime homeless a homelessness advocate, um, sometimes a Catholic worker, and, uh, and good friend to us. Uh, please help me welcome Tekka Childress. Hey. hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to be here. Thanks for getting up early, maybe even an hour earlier than you normally do, uh, to be here on this uh, time. Can you hear me? Great. On this time when uh, we had um, we jumped ahead an hour. I was telling uh, Brian that this morning I I uh, had my I didn't I don't get up by an alarm usually I wake up because I get up fairly early and I got up and looked at my computer and thought oh I got a I have about an hour. And then by the time I'd gone out, I have chickens, by the time I'd gone out and fed my chickens and everything came back in, I suddenly had more time because my clock said it was seven. So I was so happy, and then suddenly at some point I realized, no, it's not seven, it's really eight. So um, anyway, thank you for coming early. Um, I'm just really glad to be here. Um, I uh, have, was here a couple years ago, and so glad to be back here again to your community. I started um, living among homeless and unhoused people when I was uh, 20 years old. I was uh, a young person, grew up in St. Louis City, and got involved early with the United Farm Workers in the 70s. And um, when I was, uh, I guess, about 19, I met some of the folks who were going to open the first Catholic worker house in St. Louis, which we've called Karen House, if you've heard of it. It's a house of hospitality for women and children. So I, I moved into that house when I was 21, started volunteering there when I was 20 and spent a good part of my life there. And I always make a joke, because I studied philosophy and history in, at St. Louis U, and I always tell people I got a degree in philosophy and history and lived over 20 years in a homeless shelter. So watch what you study in college. No, Anyway, um, I'm just glad to be here today. So I, I started with that, and then after I lived at Karen House in my 40s, I had a little bit of a crisis. Um, you know, I guess everybody goes through their life in their 40s, thinks, you know, is this really... Am I doing what I 
really long to do, and I was doing what I longed to do, but I was finding that a lot of the families and kids that stayed at Karen House felt like Karen House was the best place they had ever lived. That when they left Karen House, they were in communities where there were a lot of violence. We lost several young people we knew that we loved uh, were killed by gun violence. So I thought there's got to be more we can do. So after years at Karen House, we founded a community called the Dorothy Day Co-housing Community, and I moved into the neighborhood around Karen House. And we started community with families who had been at Karen House. We had six families and made a lot of effort to get our kids in better schools and stuff. And that really just really furthered my joy of being with people who had been living in situations of poverty that I had not grown up with and learned what it was really, a little more being with them, what it was like. And when I moved into the um, community outside of Karen House, I had to get a real job, because Karen House, we worked as volunteers, so I had to get a real job to pay for my rent. So I started working at BJC Behavioral Health. And I worked there, and I'm still there today, about 18 years now. Um, I work as an outreach worker to folks who are unhoused with severe mental illness. So I look for folks who are out there left behind by our community and our society and try to engage them in what they need, and particularly housing. Um, and then one year, and this is the story I'll tell, this is um, about maybe 15 years ago, I was out one night looking for one of my folks, um, and I was trying to find them because they suffered with schizophrenia and it was going to be really cold that night. And so I uh, walked uh, around the uh, bus stop that is down at Hampton and Gravois because I knew one of my clients uh, spent time there, and I didn't find him, but I found a man who was slumped over, and I was, I couldn't walk away from him, so I, I wanted to see if he needed help. He was in really bad shape, and I tried to get him. He obviously needed to go to the hospital, and I tried to get him in uh, my car, but he couldn't. He was in too bad a shape, so I called an ambulance. And, uh, but because it was getting late in the day, and I was hoping to find my client, and because I was due at Karen House, it was right before Christmas, and every year the women exchange gifts, so I was going to go and help them look through our little um, donation group, uh, stuff of gifts to pick gifts for each other. Everybody chose a name and chose a gift for each other. So I was due back there, and I was trying to find my client, take care of this man, and get back. And um, so I left to look for my client, and when I came back, I didn't find my client, but when I came back, the ambulance was pulling away leaving this man there at the bus stop. And uh, so I called an ambulance back, and I said, you've got to take this man. He's not going to make it through the night. He's in very bad condition, and he's going to need you to pick him up. And they refused because they said, he said he didn't want to go. And I said, I know, but he, he's not really, he was, he'd been drinking all, he'd have finished off a fifth of something. And I said, he's not able to make a rational decision. You really need to come get him because he's at high risk. He was an older man in very poor health. Um, but they wouldn't come back and get him. So I went and I found all these tiny, ridiculously tiny blankets from Walgreens and covered them up as much as I could. And I talked to uh, the bus driver who drove through um, at, during the night, and I said, would you check on him? Because it's one of those big bus stations that have heat. has heat, that's why people go there. It has heat that comes out if you've seen those. And so she said she'd check on him. So then I go off to Karen House. And about 10 o'clock, I get home, and I call the 911, and I said, hey, I left this man there. I'm really worried about him. Would you check on him? And they said they would, you know. 
Um, so in the middle of the night, about three o'clock, I woke up and I thought, I should go check on him. And I didn't. You know, I thought, oh, for heaven's sake, Tekka, you're always worrying about everything. You never let anything go. You're exhausted, you know. And I didn't go. And I found out the next morning he had died. And it was one of the most horrible things I've ever experienced, that sadness and the, the, the disappointment in myself that I didn't go, the, the great sadness at loss of his life. And... Um, Anyway, I thought, you know, there's got to be so much more that we can do than leave people out here like this. So at the first, uh, the next, the following um, gathering we have, if you're familiar with um, down at Centenary Church for years, we've had this gathering of um, when people die who are unhoused. There's a gathering, a memorial for them on the longest night of the year. So I went to that this year and I said, you know, uh, I would really like us to do more. This man died and he didn't need to. He could have been found by us, by a lot more people who had a system and a way to respond to our neighbors. So we started St. Louis Winter Outreach. And we started going out at nighttime and finding people who were outside at night uh, and taking them to shelter. And in those days, it was, a lot of the time, it was New Life Evangelistic Center. Um, but after years of being open, over 40 years, the city has closed down New Life, which has been a real loss for us. But in those days, we would take a lot of people new life, but then they'd run out of space and we'd have nowhere to take people. We got to a point one winter, after about two or three winters of doing this, we got to a point where we were literally put, giving people bus tickets to get on the bus to ride the bus as long as they could until it stopped around maybe 12.31 at night to keep warm as long as they could because there was no place to take them. And I had been asking the city at that point quite a bit um, to, you know, to really please open a shelter um, because sometimes the city would open a winter shelter, and we couldn't get any response. They absolutely refused. I wasn't even getting emails back from the city uh, director of homeless services. I would write, call, and I was, I, was, uh, I was like all the rest of the unhoused people, ignored and left behind and not responded to. So I finally, I was, I, being a Catholic worker, I don't know if you're not familiar with the Catholic worker movement, but it was started by Dorothy Day and Peter Morin in the 1930s. And the vision of the Catholic worker is that we don't have to wait for other people to take care of each other. It's a vision of if we see God's face in each other, we can respond and take care of our neighbor. And so I was in the middle of, the, of, of uh, we have a journal we put out, and I was in the middle of editing these articles by Peter Morin. He used these short little things called easy essays. And there's one that said, don't go to the muni, don't go to the city to solve this problem. And I realized that's exactly what I was doing. So I started talking to all the churches who were working with us and saying, hey, maybe we could open our own shelters. So over the years, we opened several shelters, and we've opened to this day, I think it's like 12 or 13, and there are many other groups that are doing things beyond what we do, other churches. In Ferguson, there's a whole group of churches that do amazing work in the wintertime and open even in, under temperatures warmer than ours. They're doing great work, and for years, new life has gone out. So we're, we're just one of a group of people like ourselves who do this. But it's really radically changed because when um, Ed died, he was alone. And after he died, I was alone. But when we go out and take care of each other and when we don't leave people out, left behind, they're not alone and neither are we. And it radically changes how we can live together and really care for each other. So it was really life-changing for me. After years of doing the winter outreach work, or several years, one night I was at the uh, Centenary Church in the days when we used to pick up people from there to take them to shelter, and I was there. 
And um, there were, we'd taken over like 100 people to shelters, and there were four people left behind. I was sitting there with the last four. And these are the four people who are exhausted and quiet and, you know, maybe didn't expect anything anymore. And as I sat there with them, I was just struck at how much more they deserved. You know, these are the people who didn't, they didn't push to get first in line. They just sat there and they were tired. And, and I thought, you know, here we are taking them someplace they don't want to go, give them a bus ticket to get back. It was better than being outside, but it was so little compared to what we needed to do. So the following winter, we started a group called the Vision Team in our, of our winter outreach. And we came up with the idea of opening a winter long shelter, which we then did. Um, and, at the, and we in, opened a winter shelter that was open all winter. And at the end of that winter, we decided, why should we put these people out? For $250 a month, for those who can pay, they can have a room that they rent, and it's sort of self, it's mostly self-supporting. We've had things like bed bugs and things that have cost us money, so we've had to raise money above and beyond the expenses. But it's somewhat self-supporting if we have several people paying $250 a month and we pay rent to the, the church that we rent the building from, and one of these otherwise abandoned buildings, unused buildings. So we've been able to really house people, and we have six Assisi houses open now. Um, and uh, so this is kind of, this is one of the things we talked about, this building being used for our next door years ago. Um, so that's kind of some of the work that I have done. And, um, but before I go further, and I want to talk a lot about what are things that we can do to help unhouse people, what are some of the answers, which are very complex. But before I do that, I want to kind of talk about who's out there and why people are out there. Um, I gave you the more interesting part of the story first because I'm a history major, and I, uh, history and philosophy, and I love history. But I notice that when I go into history of stuff, I often get glazed faces. So I gave you the exciting part, so you hold on for me for this part. All right. So in, the, in our country, we've had many in, times of um, when there have been a lot of unhoused people. You know, in the history of the world, there's always pilgrims on the road, people on the road. But in this country especially, there have been uh, some big times of homelessness. One was in the, 19, in, uh, in the 1870s, we had a lot of unhoused people because uh, industrialization caused urbanization. People were going from the farm to the cities. And then there was a lot of transition and a lot of people on the road. So there was a great deal of homelessness during that period. In the 1930s, during the the Great Depression, we had a lot of people become unhoused. If any of you have read the wonderful book, Grapes of Wrath, you've seen that journey of the people going, the, um, going from the Dust Bowl to California in search of some way of surviving and living. And then in the 1970s especially, in 1980s, we've seen another increase in homelessness that we still have to this day. And so I want to talk about some of the things that have caused that to happen. In the 1970s, we had the deinstitutionalization of those with serious mental illness. So in the 1970s, so if you've, if you've ever watched you know, movies or been interested in the history of mental health, you'll see that in the, in the years past, we had asylums. Asylums where people lived and um, were just kind of very heavily medicated, mostly sedated, and couldn't really function very well. And that's where people would go who had a serious mental illness. But in the 1970s, we, the, the mental health industry was able to, and pharmaceutical industry was able to develop medications that targeted serious mental illness in a whole new way. Instead of just completely sedating people, we were able to target symptoms of mental illness. 
And these new psychotropic, new generation of psychotropic medications radically changed the ability of people with mental illness to be able to make it and to be able to function and do things. And with this change, uh, which was a great thing, uh, we, we realized we didn't have to keep people in institutions for the whole life. So we deinstitutionalized mental illness and people were let go in the community. The problem was this was also a uh, time that allowed for our government to co totally take money out of mental health and just free people from the hospital and shut down hospitals. So we went from a terrible system to another terrible system. One terrible system of just putting people in a hospital to allowing people to be on the street. We didn't put the uh, money in the community that we needed to help people with serious mental illness. In the 1980s, early 1980s, we had a 50% um, reduction in subsidized housing. We lost half of our, well, it's more than 50, how is that, 100%? Well, we lost half of our subsidized housing in the 1980s under Reagan's administration, and that was slashed. Um, over the last, from the 1970s on, we've had this globalization of the economy, which has caused us, as you know, to lose access to a lot of middle-income jobs in this country. So we've lost a lot of jobs. A lot of people could go through high school, graduate high school, work in a factory, make $20 an hour, raise a family, and live a rather middle-class life. Those jobs barely exist any longer in our country. Most people come out of high school unable to get a job and really struggle to do very low-paying service jobs. We also lost um, a lot of affordable housing. There's been a lot of... Um, a lot of... Uh, we used to, in the 19, when I first got into this life, uh, in the early 19, late 1970s, there were a lot of single room occupancy places. Like for instance, the YWCA had 400 plus rooms, really nice, single, simple rooms that were inexpensive and affordable where people could live. Because of zoning and a lot of other things, we have lost almost all. Now we see we build big houses that sometimes are not even filled and we've lost these less expensive ways that people could live. Uh, and then because of racism and, and this sort of changing in zoning, we have lost a lot of housing as well. One, one story I like to tell about is um, Mill Creek. If you're familiar with Mill Creek, Mill Creek was the area just west of Grand uh, by St. Louis University. And Mill Creek was a predominantly African-American community that was had hundreds of businesses, hundreds of mom and pop stores. Now it was a very poor area because of racism. Uh, it, was not, it was not invested in, very poor area, but there were these mom and pop stores and people had community in that neighborhood. Well, as, you know, as housing got older in the city and there was this thing called in the 50s and 60s called urban renewal, uh, the government decided that we wouldn't allow these kinds of neighborhoods anymore and they were basically closed down and torn down and replaced with things like pruitt Igo, which then was not a success, and people were moved on. And then Laclede Town, which was in that area, which, was not a, which later had troubles. And so basically gov government has come in and, and done a lot of zoning uh, regulations and a lot of blighting of areas to change the ability of people to live at less expensive means. And what that's meant is a less, less amount of, even if we had substandard housing, now we have less housing. Um, and then another thing that's been an, an important thing that's happened, especially I think even maybe since the 1980s, but especially this last five to 10 years, 
is an increase in substance use disorders, epidemic of crack cocaine, uh, methamphetamines, and opiates. And this has, um, this has been not just among unhoused people, but across our whole culture, across our whole society. But it, uh, uh, it especially if, um, affects people who are unhoused because of their vulnerabilities. I talk about this last issue about um, the effects of unhoused people and substance use because I like to make a, a difference and a, a, a explain a difference in understanding. People will try to talk about the causes of homelessness. And when I, I used to struggle with this because I'd give talks about people who are unhoused and why were they unhoused. And you either think people, there's a, you know, people often break down this situation by saying people were either unhoused because they deserve it, they weren't, they didn't do what they needed to do, or it's because society. What's actually, a, uh, the, the, what I learned in an article I read was there's a difference between the causes, societal causes that put in place lack of housing and cause homelessness versus vulnerabilities. Now people with substance use disorder have greater vulnerability. People with mental illness have greater vulnerability to being unhoused because of their losses. People with, you know, who are, don't do what they need to do are more vulnerable being unhoused. But it's important to know that these are not the causes of homelessness because the majority of people with substance use disorder in this country are housed. The majority of people with mental illness in this country are housed. So it's not an issue. The solution to housing, to people being, to the solution to homelessness is not fixing people, is having housing. Because people with mental illness are housed, people with substance use are housed. We know a lot of wealthy people who struggle with substance use. They are housed. We don't say they deserve to be unhoused. We don't even think about that. We think they need to deal with a substance use disorder, but we don't think they need to be homeless. That's their own fault. So the issue, this has been a change in this country about how to look at this issue because um, in the past, we used to, when, when in the 1980s, when we slashed subsidized housing, I shouldn't say we, because I believe me, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but when subsidized housing was slashed, the solution was to put people through all these training programs, put them through all these transitional housing programs, make families jump through hoops, try to fix them, get them ready for housing. And, you know, like this percentage made it through the whole process, which was really dehumanizing all along the way. I have known so many people have gone through it. And if I think of the level of control that other people exercised over the uh, lives of folks in this situation, none of us here would accept that in our life. So these, they, they discovered that these programs really didn't work. And in the 19, or in the 2000, under, I think it was 2009, under Obama, Barack Obama, the Hearth uh, Act was passed. And it was an update of the earlier Stuart McKinney, Stuart McKinney uh, legislation that was passed under Reagan. And what it did was it made housing first the priority. So, and when housing first became the priority, the idea is, what we need to do to solve your problem is house you. The folks with the greatest vulnerabilities need the most help. That's where the most resources need to go. And as a community or a society, the more we leave those with the most vulnerabilities and the greatest struggles out there, it costs us much more as a society to pay for those hospital bills, to pay for the police force, to pay for all these things we do to try to solve that problem rather than just helping them which is kind of like the way one of my greatest complaints 
is in the city of St. Louis, 0.04% of our budget goes to the Human Services Office, 0.04. Over 50% goes to public safety. Now, for me, that's the most cynical view of human beings. Rather than provide what they need and hope that that would help them find stability, we police them and punish them for them not having what they need. So um, the Housing First model says we're going to house those with the greatest vulnerability. So the way this is done now in St. Louis, for those who are just dying to know how this happens, uh, the city of St. Louis gets money. So the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County get money from HUD. And money comes from HUD to all the agencies who work with unhoused folks through the thing called the continuum of care. Maybe some of, some of you at some point have heard of the COC or continuum of care. A continuum of care is a gathering of agencies that declares themselves the recipient of HUD um, for their area. So we have a St. Louis City continuum of care, we have a St. Louis County continuum of care, and there are other ones throughout the nation. The continuum of care, this collection of agencies that work with unhoused people, now have to show that they're housing the most vulnerable people. And to do that, they now ask for people to take an assessment and that assessment gets you on a prioritization list. And when your name comes up on the prioritization list, agencies that provide housing have to take people from the top of that list. So it's no longer, I mean, this hurts people like me who used to be so good at calling these housing people, hey, I got somebody for you. So, but now this is the system. It's called coordinated entry where people go through the system and they get housed. So uh, now this would be a wonderful thing. And people have spent a lot of time now you're hearing my, this is the editorial part of my presentation. People have spent a lot of time working on how to make that coordination better. And I've always thought that that is not the issue. We have, we can, as a social worker, I can coordinate anything you give me. But the issue is lack of resources. It's lack of access. It's lack of resources. So the problem is that we still while we have a prioritization list, and maybe we're more fair about how we house people, we still have a thousand or more people on that list. Plus, many, many more who can't either stay on the list because they don't stay in touch or they haven't gotten on the list. So we have many more people who need housing than are getting it. And this is the issue that in our country right now, we have a great inequity of housing. Uh-huh. You know, it can be anywhere, because it's not a wait list, but a prioritization list, I have literally had people get a call within a week of putting them on, and I've had people never get a call in the three or four years they've been on. So it's everything, you know, it just depends how you fall on the list. But there are a thousand people sitting on that list now, unhoused. Um, and let me just finish this, and I'm going to take some questions. Is that okay? Yeah, because um, yeah, I'm going on long. But I'll just say that, so the thing is that the issue is that we still have great inequity and the problem is we have to figure out how to address that issue. But in the meantime, some of my thoughts about how to address the situation of having people homeless, so many people homeless in our community, is I would love to see like in every neighborhood a small shelter, or in every neighborhood an Assisi house, or in every neighborhood. I've, I've had this dream of having a couple tiny houses connected to every church. You've done that in a way. You have a tiny house with a veteran. You've already kind of taken on this idea. But if every community uh, invited a few unhoused people back into the community and supported them in getting reconnected to the community, this is one solution. Um, 
but it's going to take more resources and at least more share of resources. So, um, but as I learned with, you know, not just my experience with, with uh, Ed, the man who died at the bus stop, but all the people I've worked with, life is never as joyful when you leave people behind as it is when you embrace them. It gets messier and more confusing and harder, but all the joy is there. And you already know this is in being a community of faith, is that's where the joy is. It's when we don't leave each other behind and we live together and struggle together. So I just invite you uh, to be part of that as you already are, and thank you for having me here today. So thank you. So we're going to have microphones go around um, for questions. And again, it's not about your volume of voice. It's about other people's ears. So please do wait for a microphone to ask a question. Since I have a microphone, I'm going to ask a question. And, and, and then I want to go to you next, because I know yep. you were waiting. And, and point out um, something that Tekka said that I think is really critical, uh, which is that model of housing first works if there's enough housing to get people into. Um, and it does some incredible things data-wise. It, it alleviates the utilization of services in emergency rooms and police departments. Data-wise, it has been shown to save cities m like millions of dollars for what they put into it. Uh, but St. Louis is not currently expanding the housing first model. Uh, and that's something that means that the folks that typically get housed with housing first are the folks, if I'm right, it, these are the folks that otherwise tend to um, take up a lot of resources exactly. that could right. be used. So it's about resource prioritization in some ways, but it's also about if we don't have enough housing first going, then you're just going to um, be overwhelmed by the chronically homeless. Right. Can you say a word about the difference between chronically homeless and temporarily homeless and, and the different approaches with those two? Right. Yes, I can. So chronically homeless, these are, these are terms that HUD uses. Um, I'm somewhat of a believer in them, and sometimes I, I, I don't know. It's hard, to, it's hard to describe. But so chronically homeless, it's obvious. You know, it, it means you have, you're stuck. You've been homeless for a while. You're not getting out of it. You've got big issues. So the official definition for HUD, though, is that it means that you've been unhoused for a year without interruption, continuously, or you've been, housed four, or you've been unhoused four times in three years. So you've been in and out. You keep falling in and out. You might go to your families for a while, then you're back out. Then you go to something and you're back out. But you have issues that cause you to keep becoming unhoused. So that's, and then, but the other stipulation they have is that you have to have a disability. And there's a variety of things that are considered disabilities to um, be part of that. But that's chronic homelessness. Um, temporary homelessness are your folks who come in and out. And there are people who come in and maybe for a minute and then are, they come back in in 10 years for a second, they become unhoused. But they're generally able to manage, even though they live maybe on the lower rung of, um, of being uh, in housing safe. In fact, one of the things I didn't tell you um, you know, I often, I change my talk all the time in the middle of it constantly. So one of the things I didn't tell you that I'll tell you now is that um, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, 11 million households pay at least half of their income toward housing. And this nation is facing one of the most severe affordable housing crises in history. So if we have 11 million households, we probably have 20 million people who are at risk 
of homelessness. So some of those folks are going to go in for a minute and they're going to get it, they lose their job, they're going to become homeless, but they get another job and they get back on their feet. But we have a lot of people in this country living in poverty who are on that, at that place. I myself, you know, I'm not very far from that because I lived most of my life as a volunteer and um, I just hope the BJC doesn't fire me, you know. So, I, you know, so I, a lot of people in this country are kind of, you know, vulnerable to homelessness. Um, and so chronic, uh, un, un, those folks might come in and out, and those are folks who are temporarily unhoused. But I've discovered that, I, yeah, some, those, the, but the, the way that HUD uses those terms, I think, are a little too hard and fast. There's much more nuance than those who are chronically homeless and those who are temporary. Much more nuance in there. But. So tell me your question. Um, so Brian can comment on this as well, but in trying to rent what we call the Gannon House, mm-hmm. We have had a lot of, in talking to different agencies, they'll tour it, they'll love it. It's, we'll hear things, and Brian did all of this so you can comment much more. It's too big, or um, we're not used to housing people in a single family home. We prefer it to be an apartment, or it's too big. If they damage it, it'll be too expensive. Um, And we actually had it sit empty for six months because we couldn't find anybody who was willing to rent it at a very reduced rate yeah. that we rent it. So, so I have a thought about why that is. Do you want to say more, though, Brian? No, she captured it perfectly. Yeah. Well, I would say that that has a lot to do with government bureaucracy. I mean, all these programs that were probably coming to you had all these guidelines. Like, I had a church... Um, I, had a, I had somebody... Um, who was willing uh, in a church, uh, in their parsonage, willing to house one of my people who had a Shelter Plus care voucher. And it was an ideal situation. This person who needed support was already supported by that church. And they had a place that really, with a little imagination, could have fit every guideline of the Shelter Plus care. But that's what is lacking in government programs, is imagination. And so that's, I'm guessing that's a lot of the problem. We, you know, it's, I, it's hard to know without all the particulars, but that is the problem of all government programs. That's why I've kept winter outreach out of government programs. That's why we do things. We mostly make money just by, we have some, uh, we mostly get just private donations. And then with CC House, we've had to get bigger money, so we've gone for a few grants. But I really, we've kept out of government money for that reason. Um, okay, whoever... Hi, uh, thank you so much for coming, Tekka. Um, So I know the city has funds that are supposed to be dedicated or designated for homeless services and social services. Um, I think there was a use tax passed a while back, but some of the funds... So that comes to the, the use tax put money into the affordable housing trust fund. And then they also have emergency shelter funding through the city itself. That's their two accesses to housing themselves. Is there any discussion amongst advocates, among yourself, how we can maybe maximize more of the funding that's used to go to or from taxes to homeless services? You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion about this. And, and, you know, it's very hard for me now, like even with my husband who's um, works on, he's worked on um, affordable housing a lot of his life. And even he and I have an argument about 
the need to put some more money into, like I, I'm trying to get people to put money into shelters because we have people outside, but I don't really, it's, I want a different model. I want a model that, you know, that we have smaller community shelters rather than big institutional things. Um, because those are, un, un, they're not, they don't build our humanity and who we are as people to have these huge places. They tend to dehumanize people. But anyway, so it's very hard, even with my husband, uh, we argue about how much of the affordable housing trust fund should go toward, you know, so to putting people in a shelter and then, you know, how much can go into housing. It's, so it does go into housing, but it's not, the problem with all housing that's come out of it, it's, a lot of the housing is very slow to materialize and has all these different stipulations. A lot of housing that people provide still need vouchers. So even when we're able to get someone to do a housing, to develop housing, they still have to get these vouchers, which are very limited. So that's, that's been one of my complaints. We need more sources of um, housing, more sources of, uh, re uh, more sources of money to subsidize people. Because what we have to do, we either have to have a community that's equitable, where people make enough money and the, the capitalist system really works where people have money and can purchase housing, or you have to subsidize it. It's kind of like one or the other. You either allow people, you either give people enough income and they can purchase their own housing, or if you're, not, if you're gonna have a society that doesn't provide for enough equity and enough affordable housing, then you're gonna have to subsidize it. It's one or the other. And um, so it's kind of trying to figure out how to fix that in this current env uh, economic environment. And, and that's why, I, being a Catholic worker, I'm always looking for ways that build community and, ha and have small solutions that people are involved in. So I really think of these, like, so the way I envision, and it could use maybe some affordable trust, housing trust funds, but like I think of these small shelters as a way for people to get back in the community. So you have a small shelter with 10 people in a, in a community, and not just in poor neighborhoods, this is another issue of racism. We put all folks who are unhoused among, uh, in the north side. I mean, that's where most of the shelters are. So um, if we had small shelters in a community, a landlord in a community could take a chance on somebody. Say, hey, um, you, I have an apartment available. I'll subsidize a little bit for you if you get this job, or I'll let you work at the house with me or help me on jobs here and move in. You know, there's a million different things we can do and ways of doing it. But yeah, using, yeah, I mean, applying for those affordable housing trust funds and using them to the best, we need to maximize how we fund those. We had to fight to get more funding in. You know, it was underfunded for five years, but then this wonderful coalition working on affordable housing trust funds got it funded again last year. So it's just, you know, getting as much of that in there as possible. Um, I've often thought of having... Uh, getting, you know, if we treated un the issue of homelessness the way we treat, if we treated getting a new stadium, we could bring a lot of resources to the, to, to the, to the uh, table. You know, if, if our mayor went and said, hey, I'm going to end homelessness, come on all you local businesses, you know, just think if we looked at it differently. So that's, a, I think we, so we need to fund those sources, but we also need to go outside of the traditional sources, I think. One of the things I've uh, <clears throat> noticed in reading newspapers of late is that single-family homes are more and more being purchased by large corporations. Huh. So uh, is anyone else aware of this trend in the United States? 
So uh, <clears throat> I, I regularly get postcards. I happen to own a, a house in Cincinnati. It's a long story. But I get postcards. We buy your house for cash, da-da-da-da. These are not people who want to just flip the house. These are mega corporations who are buying up real estate all over the United States and putting them in real estate portfolios. And what apparently is going on is they're doing that. And if you're talking about government regulation, for you, you, you can't use our house because of all that. These big corporations, of course, are not going to be the same type of landlord right. as a mom and pop. Sure who will just take people because they meet with them in person and develop a relationship. Well, that's a whole other issue, and, and that's absolutely true, and it's a whole other issue. I, when I'm, I'm, I house a lot of the folks, as Adam well knows, because he's helped me house folks. I've housed a lot of folks who have the most vulnerabilities and the greatest struggles. I go with this, these felonies and evictions, and I show up at a landlord, and you can believe that every corporate landlord, every big landlord will not take them because they're smart. They have to have protections for their business. But a small poor family can take a risk on a person. They can give them another chance when they're supported by a, a community agency like my own. Un, uh, un different, different than any other corporation can. So yeah, it's going to only make housing harder yeah, for people. Yeah. Uh, I get that card all the time too. Uh, I want to buy your house and I don't even have to come and look at it. Uh, uh, just uh, call this number. I want to buy your house. And they even come to the door and said, uh, we'll buy your house. And you don't, we don't have to check it or anything. You don't have to clean it or nothing. Yeah. So you were talking about what if the mayor got together and you know got got business leaders together and really made this a a, a group effort. Is there a city or a place that you know of that has really done that? You know, I, I hear about cities like Austin that do a really good job with helping unhoused people, but I don't really know that anyone has done the thing I'm thinking of. Yeah, I don't really. That's I need to learn that more. This is the one area I have not really looked enough at. I, that's a maybe, maybe I've, the country. Yeah, maybe I need to do my homework on that. I appreciate well, that. I'll say there's a yeah. big difference from the city where I moved from in Washington, D.C. compared to St. Louis. I was dumbstruck when I moved here how many kids were on the street in St. Louis because in Washington, D.C., that, that just didn't happen. Kids that were homeless were immediately housed. Um, and I was amazed how thin our resources seemed to be for unhoused folks because Washington, D.C. pours millions of dollars more per year than St. Louis does. I want to ask the like ultimate super practical question that we clergy get all the time, which is uh, if we see somebody out at the Quick Trip or at the U-City Library or if some, um, and it's going to be a cold night or we see someone having some kind of episode out on the streets or someone asks us for money, how should we respond? Well, there's different answers to those different situations. Yep. If it's really cold, I would really then try to figure out with them. I mean, you can call 211 is the easy answer because sometimes they know what's open. Um, if you know people with winter outreach, you can connect with us. We have, we have a coordinator for each night, and when it's really cold, we could, if you know us, we could give you, we could share with your church our list of coordinators, and we could send somebody out to get them. Um, if it's an issue of money, uh, you all, there's a whole range of answers on this issue. I am fortunate 
enough that when I meet somebody, I can talk with them and see what they need and see if I can help them because I know all the resources and it's what I do and I can give them my card. I usually will, what, but the easy answer is if people are asking for money, what I always say to folks generally uh, is I um, don't give money, but I'd love to get you something to eat. I'll walk over to the store with you and get you something. I'll walk in here. I won't drive them across town to their favorite restaurant. God love them. But I will walk someplace nearby and spend 20 minutes helping them get something to eat. So that's how I solve that problem. Another woman who, it was interestingly enough, I just talked to SLU, St. Louis U, a group of social work students, about a week and a half ago. And there was a woman in recovery there, and she said, I give money. She said, you know, who am I to judge? You know, so people have a different answer. But um, the most important thing is don't, if you, unless you're, it's late at night and they seem to have a weapon or something, which is so rare. I've never, I've never been hurt in, I don't want you to be hurt, but I've never been hurt in 40 years of doing this life. And I talk to everybody. But, so what I would say is, don't, don't walk away from, don't ignore them. Dream like a human being. Say hi, introduce yourself. You know, say, hey, you know, I, I'm so sorry, I don't know you. And I don't, you know, so many people struggle with you, so I don't want to make any judgments. But if I can get you something to eat, I'd be glad to do that. You know, I just, I try to keep it a human encounter. That's the most important thing. I have a bit of a micro question that you might be able to answer. Uh, I got a letter, I think last fall sometime, that Karen House would be closing as of December 31st, and then I got another letter. Hello? Oh, good. Uh, that it would be open until uh, this spring sometime and that they were trying to find an organization to take it over and so that we don't lose those beds. Um, it, what's going on? I mean, well, I, I know the answer to that, Michael, question. Because <laughs> um, I'm part of the group that's doing that, yeah. So, um, and, and I don't think that we were ever going to close in December. It was probably a misunderstanding. We were letting people know that we were closing, but we hadn't given further information. The, the, the plan, so at Karen House, we were part of the Catholic Worker Movement. The Catholic Worker Movement's based on people um, living in voluntary poverty and living with others and sharing what they have. And in... You know, as in this culture and time when people have school debt and everything else, I, I was able to live at Karen House for free and without getting paid because my parents had, um, had worked at St. Louis Hugh and I went to school for free. I came out with no debt. I'm one of the few people in the universe of, well, maybe, maybe some in my generation. My husband managed to pay for school. But now people come out with so much debt and so much anxiety, worry about the future that we haven't been able to get the same number of people running the house that we used to. And we thought about changing our model. So the Catholic Worker is a, a house of hospitality. It's an old convent. It's up at North Market in Hogan, just north of Cass, and near Cass and Jefferson, that area. And we uh, offered hospitality for since 1977. And I started volunteering that fall in 1977 when I was 20. And we... Um, offered hospitality for years for thousands and thousands of women and children. 
So what's happened is, though, we, we, it was based on people working as volunteers. And so we looked at changing our model, and we thought, no, that's who we are, so we should really give it to someone else. Right now we have two people working there who are working there as volunteers. They're both working outside the house to pay their way, and one is in school as a nurse while she's working at the house, working a job, and studying as a nurse. So we're, um, and there were only two people, so we've really realized it was time to let it go. So if you've all heard of Reverend Mike Robinson with uh, City Hope STL, he's a friend of ours who over the last several years when New Life closed, he really stepped into the, the breach and started opening winter shelter at night. And he saved lives of so many people, night after night, opening uh, small shelters first over um, on, uh, was it, on Cottage Avenue at a little church called Bridge of Hope. And then he was la um, last year down on Gravoy and offered shelter. And this year he, he, he took the bid from the city and opened four shelters, or contracted to open four shelters this past winter, and, and housed 100 people a night, just about 90 to 100 people a night. So he was really instrumental. So we have, we have a lot of respect for him, and we met with him. We had a whole process. We met with different groups that were interested, and we ended up choosing him, because he is a lot of the philosophy of the Catholic worker, and is such a, an outstanding, does an outstanding job. So we're going to be handing the house over, and, and that plan is to hand it over in June. That's the plan. So we, he'll still need support from people after we, uh, we hand, it, hand over the keys. <laughs> I haven't had a key in years, but yeah. I am so glad to know that the churches are housing people, because when I came to St. Louis back in 35 years ago, I was a member of the Christ Church Cathedral, and we housed people downstairs in the basement of the cathedral. That. Yeah. And the city came along saying homeless people should not be sleeping in a church basement. They should have housing. And they were going to build this fantastic model of how people were going to have housing and all this and yeah. that, yeah. which never happened. Right. The shelter closed and the people were back out on the street. Um, you are talking about homelessness just being in the North County area or the um, I knew Ed that was down at Hampton and Grab Voice. I used to live down in that area. And every time I seen him, I would always give him some money or I would give him a gift card so he could go get something to eat. But outside of that, it is national. It's, it's out in the county. It's in the city. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. I mean, I live in Kirkwood. And you drive down Lindbergh Avenue any given day on Big Ben or you go to Highway 44 and there's people panhandling there all the time. What I do is I do not give them money. I always have maybe a gift card in the a restaurant gift card, or I will hand them a personal kit that has like toothbrush and toothpaste, and if if some other things, maybe shaving cream or a razor or something like that, because I do not know how many of these people are actually homeless, or if they're out there just trying to make a buck. Yeah. So it's a hard decision to make, and yeah. you just sort of have to go with your own gut on it. Yeah. You know, I, I hear that, and I, I'm, I believe there's probably a small percentage of people out there who are housed, who are trying to get money. Or even if they're housed, they're probably underhoused, you know. But honestly, I think it's the minority. Because I, if you've ever seen that, I can't think of anything less pleasant than standing all day long going back and forth in traffic. I mean, I would rather do a thousand different jobs than that. So maybe you make more money at it, I don't know. 
But yeah, so, but I do think there, there may be some, but I don't think it's the majority. Take, I have one more question. If you can imagine being in a room with a faith-based community who wanted to expand their housing outreach, mm -hmm. what would you tell that room? Just try to, try to imagine you were there right now. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would be the number one thing you'd yeah. ask from them? Well, I, I would look at, um, you know, there's a couple of different things you could do. I mean, I have for a long time been trying to get this notion of a small, like a small community of, so I, there's, I'm going to give three or four options. One would be to open a small place where you offered hospitality to a handful of people who are currently unhoused to help them and then figure out if there's ways to get, you know, get them housed from there. You could um, build a couple tiny houses around your church here uh, if you can get through the, the rigmarole of bureaucracy. They're now, you, they've, they've gotten rid of a lot of the tiny house, the things that killed tiny houses. So in terms of the, I know they did in the city with the Board of Alders, so I don't know what's going on in the county, but you know, if you can get through the bureaucracy, you could build a couple of tiny houses or and continue your effort, what you're already doing here. Another way is that, well, I mean, I should just, I'm so glad you asked this question because I miss going to church to ask my own church this. I have a woman right now who was in one of our CC houses um, and she has an opportunity to get in a tiny house that's opened on North Grand, by North Grand Neighborhood. And I'm looking for, a, I was looking for a church to, to what we call partner with her by providing um, up to $100 a month. And it could be a couple people, or you could do it as a, pair, a group. Um, because she, her income's not quite enough to pay, the, they want $400 in rent, and her income's 700 and something. And um, Actually, I have Christ Church Cathedral thinking of it, so this is a challenge from your, <laughs> for those of you uh, is thinking about doing it and helping. So I'm looking for a second church to offer a little more money to help support this person so they'll accept her in this house. And it would be for one year. So it would be a limited thing where you don't say for the rest of our existence we're going to house this person. For one year, we're going to put $100 or even 50 toward this person's housing. So that's something I'm desperately looking for in a very specific Thing I'm trying to help this woman, um, who I think for whom I think this would be a good opportunity. So there you are. Really concrete ask at the end. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of it. Way to go! If if Brian. you want to make some concrete help, uh, either talk to one of the clergy or to your treasurer, Brian Barnhart. Um, so next week, I, I had my dates messed up in my head. Next week, we will actually be taking a pause on our housing conversation because we have a special guest at 1030, uh, Sharad Sathe. Dr. Sharad Sathe is doing a special Indian music festival next Sunday during the 1030 service. And he'll be here at the forum with us to talk about uh, the history of the music that he's going to be playing, um, to demonstrate some of the instruments and things like that. So really interesting forum in a totally different light. Uh, that we take a pause, and then when we come back on the 22nd, we'll be hearing from the St. Patrick Center. Will you join me in thanking Teca Childress? Yay, thank you all. Yay.